If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, and as you find that, stand for the reading of Scripture. Matthew 23, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 12. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men rabbi. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And I'll pray. Lord, I thank you again so much for all that you've given us in Christ, all that you've done for us, the work is finished, and that by his shed blood, which you have accepted on our behalf, we are one with you, and that we now have the same oneness, Lord, unity that Father and Son have. We thank you, God, that we do not have to to strive for this, but we rest in it and live from it. And I pray as we look at your word here, God, that you would again just speak to us, that we would hear your voice and yield, Lord, in faith and obedience to all that you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great to be back with you again. I feel like I almost need to introduce myself after um, being out for so long, but I really appreciate the, the elders um, encouraging me um, to take um, these weeks off in August. They're worried about me getting so old, they figure I just may just fall asleep during one of my own sermons since I'm putting everybody else to sleep, and so they were concerned about that. No, I'm just kidding, but they were, I'm very thankful for that. I appreciate John filling in for me the first Sunday in August, and Bill Bushhouse the last three Sundays, and, um, and I, we, Patsy and I, have been grateful for the rest. We spent one week, we went up to Alaska, never been up there before. We had some airline tickets that were going to expire, and, um, and that was about the only place we could think of that that particular airline went that wasn't um, hot, and so we um, um, enjoyed that week in Alaska visiting friends and, and just driving around. It was a wonderful time. So if you don't remember, we've been looking at Matthew for quite a while now, and we're up to chapter 23. And this is the, the last public discourse that Jesus gives, and he is in the last week of his life here on earth. This would be the Wednesday prior to his crucifixion. And there's a lot that's going on on this particular day. The Pharisees and the um, Sadducees, they've come and they've been testing him, examining him, just as the people, when they bought that, um, that lamb and they would take it into their home prior to the Passover, they would spend three days examining that lamb where Christ is being examined during this same time. And he's passed the test with flying colors. 
um, not to um, the pleasure of the Sadducees and Pharisees. But now he's turned the tables and he goes, it's my time to speak about you. And so this last public discourse is all centered on the Pharisees and the scribes in particular. And the one word that he has to describe them is hypocrites. And after verse 12, beginning in verse 13, he's going to give a list here of the different ways that they show their hypocrisy. And it is scathing. I don't know how you could read this chapter and not just feel like you've been singed just by reading it. It reminds me of those days in elementary school when the teachers who were not didn't have the same restraints on them that they have today, and they could spank kids, and they could yell at kids. Oh, those were good days. And they, and they I remember different times, a, a, a teacher screaming, just, you know, blood vessel bursting type of screaming at a kid in the classroom, and I would just be sitting there going, oh, have mercy on me. You know, and, and so this is one of those passages. I don't think that the Lord Jesus was screaming, but he is very, very... Um, um, intentional, direct, uncompromising here in what he has to say. You walk away from this chapter going, if God hates anything, he hates hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy has already been mentioned in Matthew. Back in chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus said, get the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. And he's speaking of hypocrisy. Well, now after this whole time of three years of ministry, he circled back around to that and he is just hammering um, the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. So what is hypocrisy? If God hates it so much, I'm going to have a little bit of a more lengthy introduction here than I would normally have, but I feel like it's important for this, for this um, passage. What is hypocrisy? How do we define it? It's not complicated. Basically, if you look up Webster's Dictionary definition on it, it's acting like something that you are not. It's pretending to be something you aren't. We've all seen this. We have many examples of it. Ever so often you hear about um, stolen valor, where some person who is not military, has never served in the military, but he acts like he has been in the military. And we hate it because he doesn't deserve the privileges and honor that come from being in the military when he was never in the military. We hate it when we see our, our elected officials that go there to serve us and you see anything but serving of the people. It seems to be very self-serving. We hate it when we hear that pastors who have been preaching righteousness and they become exposed for unrighteousness, for immorality. It's acting in a way that is not true of you. And religious hypocrisy, God hates more than any other kind. It is saying one thing and doing another. It is living contrary to your stated beliefs. But let me be, be um, careful here. Sometimes I hear people say, well, hypocrisy is what I'm doing when I act one way and I don't feel that way. No, that's called being an adult. You don't just do what you feel like doing. That is not hypocrisy. That is maturity. Teaching your kids to avoid the mistakes that you made is not being hypocritical. It's being a good parent. 
You know what those mistakes mean. You don't want, so you say to your kids, I did that. Don't repeat my mistakes. And if the kid goes, well, that's hypocrisy. No, that's maturity. Doing the right thing when you don't feel like it, acting contrary to your emotions is a good thing. That is not hypocrisy. So if you don't feel like getting up out of bed in the morning, but you do anyway, that's a good thing. So we want acting responsibly, choosing against your emotions, doing the right thing when you don't feel like doing the right thing. Those are good things. That is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is acting one way, and it's not true. Acting righteous when you aren't, and God hates it. So why does he hate it so much? Because hypocrisy is a lie. It is living a lie. It is a lack of oneness, of congruency between reality and actions. It is the absence of oneness between the outer life and the inner life, the actions and the words, between morality and ethics, between practice and theology, between public life and private life. All of those things, that brokenness between public life and private life, between actions and words, all of that brokenness speaks of a lack of integrity. Integrity is what you say is what you do. You mean what you say and you do what you mean. That consistency is integrity. And when it isn't there, it is hypocrisy. Where we claim one thing, say one thing, but we don't do it and have no intention of doing it. When there is no oneness, when there is no integration between what we profess and how we live, God is blasphemed because God is one. There is no disparity, there is no disunity between the words of God and the character of God. Absolutely consistent. This is why you can't know God's character apart from God's words. And when you read the words of the Bible, you know God's character because there's no disintegration, there's no division between the two. And when God sees this separation in you and me between words and actions, private life and outer public life, God says, what is going on? This is a lie. This is untruthfulness. This is not unity of person, but this is inner division of a person. Hypocrisy is a violation of the number one commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. See, that speaks of unity. And in the Old Testament, the verse that precedes that command is, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One. Love the Lord your God with oneness toward him who is one. Jesus just said in the previous chapter where he is asked by one of the lawyers, what is the greatest command? And Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And now he's saying, you hypocrites! Because there's not this unity, this cohesiveness, consistency between what is professed and what is true.
You remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed in one of the earlier chapters, also in the very last week of his earthly ministry. Why did he curse that tree? Because when you see leaves on a fig tree, those leaves are advertising fruit. And he walked up to that fig tree and there's no fruit and it's hypocrisy. You're claiming life, Israel, and there's no life in you. And he cursed that tree because of the hypocrisy between the profession and the reality. No, when there is no integrity, when there is a brokenness between outward and inward, it's not integrity any longer, it's disintegration. It's the pulling apart of what ought to be integrated. We've all heard of the second law of thermodynamics. And that law, Jim can explain this in great detail, but this law, if it speaks of anything, it says there's a process of disintegration where the world is wanting to pull apart. And it's Jesus that's holding it all together. But because of sin, everything is wanting to separate and move apart. And Christ is holding it together against that power of sin, that principle of disintegration that is in this world. God didn't create that principle of disintegration. It's a consequence of sin. And when my inner life and outer life are not paired, when they are not in harmony and consistency with each other, it's because of sin. God came and died for us and restored us to oneness with God so that every aspect of my life might be brought back together in integration, in oneness toward Him. Jesus has some other words besides hypocrites to describe these people. In the last part of the chapter, He's going to describe them, these hypocrites, as fools, blind men, Filthy inside, whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers. Do you get the idea God's not real happy about hypocrisy? Religious hypocrisy is especially vile to God. It is a direct assault on the character of God because it is a direct, has a direct impact upon people's spiritual condition. Think of the cults. Just like the Pharisees, just like the religious leadership of Israel of their day, they promise life, but fail to deliver. They claim to be on the inside track of what it means to have life, and yet they are dead themselves and cannot deliver what they promise because they don't have it. Being a fraud religiously is the worst kind of being a fraud. When you claim to know God, and yet you don't, that's the ultimate hypocrisy and fraud. I have a friend grieved me when I heard that after a period of what should have been restoration, humbling, um, getting back on track. And he took a job with another friend of mine. And after that short tenure of working with this friend of mine, 
his assessment of the one who had gone through this brokenness and restoration and being back on track, his assessment of him was one word. He's a fraud. Fraud. Grieve my heart. Because I was so hopeful that that wasn't true any longer. But we have fraud in all of us. There is not any one person that is absolutely consistent between what he professes and what he does. Nobody, believer or unbeliever. Now, one of the biggest criticisms that the unbeliever has about the church is because it's full of hypocrites. Amen. (laughs) So is it outside the church. And I'm not just passing over that. I've just been telling you how this is particularly heinous to God, religious hypocrisy. But I will say this. The more you profess to be true, then the more opportunity you have for hypocrisy. So an atheist is even hypocritical. But a person who denies everything It's a lot harder to be hypocritical. But if you affirm anything, then that gives you an opportunity to not live, not match what you profess. Fraud is in all of us. None of us is without sin. Sin is disintegration. Disintegration between who Christ is and what we are doing. We've been made the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And when we act in a way that is less than righteous, then that is disintegration. It is a lack of integrity, a lack of oneness between who we are and what we do. So we should approach this passage humbly, not just saying, wow, man, they're getting what they deserve, but humbly recognizing that Hypocrisy at some level exists in all of us. And seeing God's heart toward it, I hope that it would humble us even further. We'd say, Lord Jesus, keep me away from duplicity. Keep me away from acting one way that is, and, and professing one thing, and it's not true of what is of my heart. So as this passage starts, it says that Jesus is talking to the multitudes and the disciples, and he's talking to them about these scribes and their Pharisees. And he says to them, first of all, they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, if you've been around Bernie Bible Church, you can count on one hand how many times I've put anything up on the screen or used any visual aids, so this is one of those few times. What is the chair of Moses? Well, it's, it, it's, it's figurative, but it's also literal. And I didn't know this till I made a trip to Israel. And there is an excavated old little synagogue. And in that synagogue, they have a replica of an actual chair of Moses that they found, the archaeologists found, and they have in a museum in Jerusalem. And so, do we have that up? So here we have... This is Stuart and Carolyn Holmes' daughter-in-law, Rick Hell, sitting on the actual chair of Moses. Every synagogue had one of these. It was a stone chair in their stone synagogue, 
And if you really were spiritual, if you were the most spiritual in the synagogue, you got to sit in that chair. Whoopie-doo. And so not only does so Raquel, I mean, this is so heretical, a woman sitting in the chair of Moses. And so we have a man sitting in the chair of Moses. And here we have Keaton, who happens to be in our midst, sitting here, but he's not quite in the spirit of it because he's grinning, okay? Would you, can you imagine a Pharisee sitting there grinning? So we have a, oh, now he's in this, oh man. That's the chair of Moses. It was a literal chair. So you can turn the lights back on and take that off. So aren't you glad I finally used an illustration? Come back 10 years from now, you might see another one. So it's a literal chair. But it's also spoken of figuratively, like in a university, you would have a department chair. And so it's that idea, it speaks of authority. And so they have seated themselves, which says they have exalted themselves, they put themselves there. And so what were they doing? They were, they were assuming an authority that was not only equal with Moses, but actually superior to Moses. And they did that in two ways. They made laws that Moses never said anything about, but you were expected to keep them. Every bit as much as you were expected to keep the actual words of Moses. And so that's making themselves superior to Moses when they are adding to what Moses said. That was how, on the one hand, they did it. Another is that they had so elevated the teaching of the rabbis concerning what Moses said. So they had their whole commentaries, they didn't call them that, but they had their books compiled of the teaching of the rabbis explaining what Moses said. And they so venerated the rabbis' teaching that they didn't even read their Bibles. They just read what the rabbis taught about Moses. So why read Moses? Just read the rabbis. They're still doing it today. This is, this is so common in the Orthodox Judaism today. They don't read their Bibles. They don't. They're reading what the rabbis wrote about their Bibles. And so they have seated themselves in the chair of Moses in that they have superseded the authority of Moses. Moses is not permitted to speak for himself. How common is that? Oh, my word, it is everywhere. So this is, again, where we have to be honest with ourselves. Am I approaching Scripture and letting Scripture speak for itself? Or am I ten, is my tendency to say, well, it can't mean that? I've heard somebody else say this about that. Rather than just let it say what it says. One of the basic rules of hermeneutics, is let Scripture speak for itself. Let Scripture interpret itself. Don't add to it, don't take away from it, and don't put yourself as a judge of Scripture. God gave His Word to judge us, not for us to judge it. Scripture is the authority. I'm not the authority. And so if you were to, I hope you never, this never happens, but if you were to hear me say, I know this is what Scripture says, but run for the doors. 
That is not how we are to handle God's word. This is what scripture says. There is no but. Had a guy just yesterday, former student, he texted me and said, my sister and I are having this debate. She sent me this text and it says, and she believes that a man, that a woman cannot teach a man the Bible. And she sends me the text of what the preacher, what the, what the sister said. What do you think? And, she, and the sister went through 1 Timothy chapter 2, just wrote it out. And at the end it says, she says, sister to brother, God has said that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so the brother who went to Bible school with us is going, what do you think? And I said, I think your sister is right. It's pretty clear. And then he goes, well, that sounds like legalism to me. Oh, my word. So we had a nice, friendly interchange with each other, and, and it was profitable. But I want to just to that point, and that's not what my sermon's about today. It's not legalistic. It can be. But on its face, it is not legalistic to say, this is what God's word says, and I accept it. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to debate it. God says it. I say, yes, Lord. That is not legalism. That is, that, is, that is how we are designed to live. It's not that we stop thinking, but I don't put my thinking, my critical thought processes on top of Scripture. I let Scripture inform my thinking, not the other way around. And if it's reversed, then I put myself in the chair of Moses, who do I think I am? What does God say? And whether, and this is the thing about spiritual truth. Oswald Chambers and many, many others have been, been so clear. Spiritual truth, spiritual insight does not come through intellect. It comes through obedience. And until you are prepared to obey God's word, you are not going to understand why God has said what he has said. Spiritual understanding and insight does not come through intellect but through obedience. So where I'm not putting myself in the chair of Moses, I'm putting myself in the chair of the one who needs to learn and saying, God, speak to me. I am not the authority. I have no right to judge Scripture. It is Scripture which is to judge me. It is not living by legalism. It is living by God's design. So I told my friend, Cars are designed to run on gasoline, not salt water. And when I put gasoline in a car, that is not legalism. That is having the car function according to its design. And when I surrender to what God has clearly said in his word, that is living by God's design. Therefore, verse 3 all that they tell you to do, do, therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. And he may have been speaking a bit of, in tongue-in-cheek here, with some sarcasm, with some irony. Hard to say. You read the Living Bible on this. I don't often read it, but I happen to pick it up and, and read the Living Bible's paraphrase on this, and they take this as he's speaking with irony. And, you know, just tongue-in-cheek. Do what they say. 
But if they are telling you to do actually what Scripture says, then yes, do what they say. But he says, but don't do according to their deeds. Because these are people who are not living consistent with the word. How so? Verse 4, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. There is a burden to God's word. Jesus has already said in Matthew, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Amen? But he also says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my load, my burden. So there is a burden and there is a load. But the difference is what Jesus puts on us He also supplies the enabling to do. We are yoked with him. And his strength is brought to bear on everything that he requires of us. So if I read my Bible in such a way as to say, well, that's a burden, that's a burden. God came to set me free. So I don't have to do that. Clearly, I'm not reading this correctly. No. God's word, God's commands to us do involve a burden. The difference is he lifts the burden. He doesn't take it away, but he supplies the strength, the grace, and the enabling for what he is putting on me. Whereas with the Pharisees, they're more than happy to load me up with a burden and just say, blessings, (laughs) good luck, and not lift a finger. I think a, a, a good illustration here of helping to lift the burden is when you find a brother or sister who maybe has failed morally, they have sinned, rather than just condemning them for their sin, you say, you know, what happened here is sin. And now I'm in your life to help you live with the consequences. Rather than to say it's not sin and you can just go on your merry way, but to say this is sin. We're going to call it what God calls it. And I'm in your life to help you. That was not the attitude of the Pharisees. They would call it sin. They would condemn you. Live a different way themselves and never lift a finger to help you. Young woman finds herself pregnant outside of marriage. She has sinned. It is fornication. Call it what it is. What should she do? She should give birth to that child and not abort that child. Clear. And what is our responsibility? Do everything we can to help her. Lift lift more than a finger. Do everything we can to assist her while calling it what it is and yet saying, here I am to help, whatever it would be. Verse 5, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries. What is a phylactery? It's a little leather box that they would wear either on their forearm or between their eyes on their forehead with a piece of scripture in the box. 
And they, they got this from the Old Testament where Moses said, you know, keep the word of God in front of your eyes. So they took that literally. So they put a little box with scripture right between their eyes. And some of them, and you can still see it among the Orthodox Jews today, some of them have bigger boxes than others <laughs> because they're more spiritual. And so they make their little boxes bigger, and they want to wear tassels at the corner of their garments. And so some of them, because they really were more spiritual than others, at least they wanted you to think so, they would lengthen those tassels, all for the sake of what other people think. Self-serving, looking for the approval and praise of man with no thought to the approval and praise of God. They love, verse 6, the place of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. So they're always looking for praise and recognition. Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and humbled himself, not looking to be exalted, looking to exalt the Father. Do not be called rabbi. Rabbi? What's wrong with being called rabbi? Well, I believe, trying to find it, yeah, it means my great one. We had a man in the church here who told his grandchildren to call him Hopi. Hoppy, Hopi. And I go, what is Hopi? And he smiled and says, it's an old Apache word for great wise one. <laughs> and so, so his kids, oh, that's great. So his kids all called him the great wise one. Don't let anybody call you rabbi, my great one. Don't let anyone on earth call you um, father, for one is your father. Don't be called leaders, for one is your leader. Now, we have to be careful here and, and understand the spirit of what Jesus is saying. There is only our, our this is talking spiritually here. There is the sort, father means source of. There is only one who is the source of my spiritual life, and that is God. Paul was, was, was not uncomfortable reminding people that he had led to Christ, that he was their spiritual father. But he did not require people to call him father. But on occasion, he would remind somebody, you know, I was the one who led you to Christ. You have many teachers, but you only have one father, and that's me. But he wasn't trying to take the place of God. Paul spoke, spoke very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, particularly chapter 4, and he says, we are servants of God. But he also said, but we apostles are not just servants, but we're also stewards. So we are servants like everybody else, but God has put us in a position of authority. They didn't seek it. They didn't elevate themselves. It was something God did. And so when God gives us positions, we need to not forget we are one among equals. Every single Christian has as much of the Holy Spirit as any other Christian. You have all that God is, each Christian. But God does choose to put some in leadership. But those leaders should never become indispensable to the body. The one who is indispensable is Jesus Christ. Only one. Any other person is dispensable. Only one should be the one that we are truly dependent on.
Sometimes God takes people out of our lives that we've become too dependent upon because he wants us to remember our dependency is to be upon him. Nothing wrong with having those spiritual mentors, spiritual guides and friends, but they should never take the place of God. It's too much of a tendency for us to latch on to those that we can see rather than to be clutching and clinging to the one that we can't see, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's all Jesus is saying is these Pharisees are trying to put themselves between you and God. They are not signposts pointing to God, but they are obstacles keeping you from getting to God. That's the problem. In contrast, the application here, Jesus says, instead of being called rabbis and fathers and leaders, you need to understand what the true principles of leadership are. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. These are principles. I believe they're absolutes. Whoever exalts himself, it's not whoever is exalted, because God will exalt people. He will put them in positions that they did not seek for themselves. God does that. But if you do it, if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. It's a principle. It's an absolute. And it's also an absolute. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. May not happen quickly. May not even happen in this lifetime. But God honors those who honor him. That's not works. That is just the law of the harvest that God has built into his universe. That when we honor God, he promises to honor us. When we humble ourselves, he promises to exalt us. No one ever humbled himself more than Jesus. And no one was ever exalted more than Jesus. But that exaltation did not happen here on this earth. He now sits at this right hand of the Father and has been given a name above every other name. So you can take it to the bank. Want to draw a bullseye on yourself and make yourself God's target? <laughs> Exalt yourself. Want to be exalted by God? Humble yourself. And sooner or later, at the right time, God will exalt you. So, not enough time to get into the rest of the chapter. I'm not sure I want to. I mean, it really, it'll scald you. <laughs> it is hard reading these verses. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. But keep in mind, he's talking about people who do not know him but claim to. People who are not righteous, but claim righteousness. That is the worst kind of hypocrisy, a religious hypocrisy. People who will go to church, devote their lives to religion, and not have anything of a relationship, a personal relationship through faith in Christ. It is a lie. 
But we all have inconsistencies in our life where the words fail to match actions, where the outer life fails to match the inner life. And so even though these next verses we'll see next time do not apply directly to us because we are not unbelievers professing to be saved, professing life. There is nonetheless a secondary application in that we have hypocrisy in all of us, and God hates it. And so the Lord would have us, I believe, to humble ourselves and come to him and say, God, may there be no pretentiousness in me, no falseness in me, May you be exalted in me, O God, by having my words match my actions, my private life be consistent with my, with my outward life. That everything, God, matches and comes together in oneness for your glory. Because you, O God, are one. And you're looking for oneness, integrity in your people. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you that we are not able here, but you are. You have shown us, God, that you are one. You are true. There is no contradiction, no disharmony, God, no disunity within you. But you are a God of integrity, of oneness. And what you are is what you have brought us into as we've celebrated this morning with communion. Oneness with you. And I do pray, God, that, that more and more as we know you and walk with you, we would become a humble people whose walk matches our profession. That we would be true to you in the innermost being, where you search and look for truth, that you would find that in us, O oh God. That we would not presume, Lord, to sit in judgment on your word. But we would allow your word to examine us. As David said, search me, O God, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. That we would allow your word to have authority over our lives in all things. And that we would humbly submit, say yes, Lord, and by faith obey you. I thank you, God, that you are not one who just puts burdens on people and then walks away. But everything that you would put on us, you live within us to supply the grace and the strength and the enabling to fulfill what is required. And in the end, we will all say, you did it, we didn't, because of that enabling grace working within us. In Jesus' name, amen.